Hello and welcome to The Sidebar presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an LA County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We are recording this on Friday, January 26th, 2024. In this week's episode, trial is set to begin in the tragic case of a Southern California socialite charged in the hit-and-run deaths of two young boys. Also, yes, you are hearing this correctly, Alec Baldwin is again charged with involuntary manslaughter for the Rust movie on-set shooting. But first, in a case that legal scholars are calling groundbreaking, the mother of the Oxford High School shooter faces charges for her alleged failure to intervene in her son's actions. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Brian Buckmeyer, a former public defender, trial counsel at the law firm of Hamilton Clark LLP, and a legal contributor at ABC. Brian is also author of Come Home Safe, which is available wherever you get your books. Brian, welcome back. How have you been? Thank you, Joshua. I've been great. The New Year's been treating me well, along with the accomplishments you're talking about. I've got a a one and a half year old son and a lovely wife, so I'm all smiles. I'm blessed. Fantastic. And you've got some uh, new stuff in the works as well, right? Yeah. So uh, starting January 4th was my first segment on Good Morning America 3. It's the third hour of Good Morning America. We all know Good Morning America from ABC, but it's just additional information. It's what you need to know uh, about everything that's going on in, in your life. And so I start off on January 4th with a segment called Better Call Brian. And we're breaking down legal issues, whether it be uh, Trump being off the ballots in Colorado and in Maine and how that works, explaining it. We're not just telling you the information. We're explaining it in a way that you can walk away and say, hey, I know a little bit more about this than just the headlines and the articles I've been reading. We talked about the Jam Master J trial two weeks after that. And coming up on January 1st, uh, sorry, February 1st, I'm, I'm working on one of two things. Either this whole issue between Governor Abbott and uh, President Biden, the, the Fed issue, the state issue, what's going on, like explain it. Because even I'm a little confused. Uh, or we may actually talk on one of the cases we're talking about today, uh, that being the Crumbly case, asking the question, are parents liable for the actions of their children in the context of a mass shooting? Again, uh, it's what people want to know and it's breaking down the, the issues and explaining law. Excellent. Well, both of those sound like fascinating topics. I will say I have caught uh, some of your segment before. You do an incredible job of explaining things, as always. So I highly recommend it to anybody listening to please check it out. I'm glad that it's now becoming more of a regular segment because you are one of the people that I look to uh, to weigh in on these things because I always appreciate your take uh, on these issues. A lot of people talk about them, but it's it's nice to hear someone who's got a fresh take on some of them. So let's jump right in. First, we move to Oakland County, Michigan, where trial is underway for Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of Oxford High School shooter Ethan Crumbly, as she faces charges of involuntary manslaughter for her alleged failure to intervene before her son committed the deadly shooting. In opening statements, prosecutors claimed that Crumbly had multiple opportunities to prevent the tragedy by intervening in the emotional deterioration of her son and limiting his access to firearms. 
Crumbly became tearful as jurors were shown security footage from the massacre. This video was admitted by the judge over defense objections, but limited the audio to not include the sounds of gunfire or screaming. Crumbly's defense has claimed that the mother could not have predicted the atrocities her son would commit. In their opening statements, which featured, get this, the Taylor Swift lyric, Band-Aids Don't Fix Bullet Holes, Crumbly's defense alleged that shifting blame on the parents is not a solution to school shootings. The trial is ongoing, with 20 to 25 witnesses expected to testify for the prosecution before Crumbly's attorney can mount the mother's defense in this landmark case. Brian, I want to get into these opening statements. Uh, I, I know you have some thoughts on that, but before we do, I just want to hear your thoughts generally on this prosecution. A lot of people are divided on this. Some feeling that this is misguided, it's prosecutorial overreach, and others feeling that it's absolutely necessary and a step toward preventing mass shootings like this. What are your thoughts? So my thought, I'm, I'm a bit of on both sides of this, and I agree about both both sides, and I kind of come in in the middle, and I think we need a bright line rule. We need notice for all parents as to what action is grossly negligent, what actions are not, and I think the best people to decide that oftentimes are 12 people in the box. Now, these parents are either going to be found guilty or not guilty. We're going to see the evidence of them allegedly being negligent them uh, being kind of just letting the, their, their child fall by the wayside, not paying attention to the red flags. But we're also going to hear evidence from the defense side as well, saying they were good parents. They did this. They did that. And 12 people are going to measure it out. And, and what I like about this case is it's going to give us a bright line. And I think having a line in the sand, and, and bright line is a legal term of how we distinguish what is and what isn't criminal or wrong. Uh, and that's why I'm using it as that in that definition. I think having that line helps us all, whether or not these people are found guilty or not. Yeah, I agree that I, I, I agree with you in the sense that I go back and forth on this. Um, I, I I sympathize, and we all do, with the frustration and incredible hurt that we feel as a society to see these shootings continue to happen and you want to do something and we keep pointing our fingers at different things that we think need to be solved and this is one of them i think parents and their involvement with with children is is not a third rail i think it's definitely something that needs to be addressed here's where i have the most uneasiness with all of this is that how many parents struggle with children who have emotional problems mental problems and the kids say and do awful things, are all of those parents now on notice that if their child goes out and does something despite their efforts that they may be held liable for it? One of the things as this trial unfolds that I, caught my attention, and it's something that we've all known about, but it made me think about it in a different context. I want to hear your thoughts, is that they had a meeting, that, and this has become a focal point of this trial. They had a meeting with the school counselors who were concerned with Ethan's behavior and the prosecution has made a big deal over the fact that that meeting ended after 11 minutes or so. Very quick meeting. The parents said they didn't want to take him home with them. They declined to. There's some dispute about whether or not uh, they refused to or were given the option. But in any case, they left him there at school. And a lot of the prosecution has focused on how this almost shows kind of an indifference that they had towards his his mental state. But then I was also thinking about it too. There are a lot of parents who don't have 
childcare and what are they going to do with their child when they bring him home? And that may have been a concern that they had. And also they're not leaving him out on the street. They're leaving him at school where I imagine there's the assumption he's going to be supervised to some extent and somebody's going to be watching over him. He's not in an unsafe place. He's at school with people who care for and are concerned with him. And that begins to make me think too, like, you know, you can really see both sides of this. And again, I know I'm probably going to catch a lot of heat for this because I agree that these parents were negligent to some extent, but does that push it into the realm of criminal activity? So I I agree with everything you you say, and I'm not going to push back on any of it. I want to only say that I would add in two more elements. Um, One is, is something that the prosecution actually caught me off guard with. And I actually was like, that, that's interesting. And I talked about this a lot on crime a few days ago, where I analogized it to going to a doctor and trying to get a diagnosis or, or a prescription. If I go in and I have a splitting headache, but I say, you know what, I'm okay. My, my knee is just a little hurt. And they look at my knee and they're like, you know what, just, just rub some dirt on it, you'll be okay. And I walk out and I find out I have a tumor in my brain, I can't blame the hospital. And that's something that the prosecution got out here. They said in that 11 minute kind of conversation with the parents, they didn't reveal all of the issues that they knew that the school then can use in their calculation to say, okay, based on the fact that you're telling us that he, he told you that he's hearing demons, that he's asked for help, that you bought him a gun recently, like all these other factors with what you know and what, what we know, now this is our assessment. But the prosecution is saying they left that out. And I think in that leaving that out, I think that's where, again, I go back to that bright line rule of it's not just about having low resources, because I agree with you. If this becomes a law or a precedent where we just say, if you don't have the resources to take care of your child and and that child does harm to other people, we're going to find you criminally negligent. Then there's going to be a whole economic population of people who are going to end up in prison. And I don't want to see that, especially as a public defender. But if we're talking about the lack of care, the lack of duty, the lack of informing the school to make an educated decision, and you're withholding information, you're ignoring information, you're kind of turning the other eye, then I get to the point of saying, "Mm, I I think you may be on the hook. What else is going on here? Uh, The other aspect I, I put as well is that I got pushed back with is we've had so many school shootings. I think last year we had more mass shootings than we had days in a year. All parents should now be on some kind of notice because I made the argument of every reasonable parent is unreasonable in their belief that their child will be the next school shooter. But I think as a parent, we have to maybe swallow that a little and say there are so many children, regardless of age, race, social economic, this could affect anyone. And if it could affect anyone, it could affect us. And we should be looking out for these signs. Yeah. Not one of these parents who has been confronted after their children has done something awful has ever said, I saw this coming. All of them say, I never saw this coming. And I never thought, uh, you know, not in a million years, you're right. Maybe maybe something needs to be done to address the idea that that not every parent can view their child as, as, as it being impossible that they, they would never do something this horrific because obviously it does happen and it happens on a scale that we we need to do more about it. One one last thing on this, I could talk about this case for the entire time you, we're real, here. I haven't read it yet, but I think someone told me that the 
parent of the Columbine shooter actually did write a book, a little bit of a 2020 hindsight yeah. book about that very issue. I haven't read it yet. I don't know the name of it, but just wanted to add that one point real quick to your listeners. Yeah, I I, I didn't know that, but I will definitely check it out. But um, the point I was going to make, and I just want to hear your one thought on this, and then we'll move on to other topics. But the, at least in the opening statement, they we haven't heard the defense's case yet, but they allege that Ethan, the shooter, was uh, hiding things from the parents, that there was a lot he didn't let them know, and that he was lying to them and being deceitful about some of the things he was experiencing. Now, they were aware of a lot, and they were aware of a lot that's certainly disturbing and should have put them on notice that this child was not well. But what do you think about the idea that he is an independent actor, and he's an independent actor to the point that he's hiding things how are they supposed to be on notice of things that they're not even fully aware of their child's own condition because of the way that he's hiding it from them? Yeah. So I know we talked about the opening statement before we got on. My opinion of the opening overall, not the greatest opening in the world. But I think on this issue, this is their strongest issue. I think it relates to other parents. It's strong from a legal standpoint. And I always say, if you got a good story and a good legal argument, you're halfway to winning a trial. And the, the idea of not being on notice goes into the idea of foreseeability, which is a strong issue here. It also goes to the issue of causation, saying that, and I know I'm throwing out legal terms, uh, that the shooter is a superseding intervening factor to the actual issue of the parents missing red flags. Strong legal arguments. I would have loved for the defense to focus on that more than Taylor Swift and, and pointing the figure at everyone else. But, but I think you're, to your point, that's where they're strongest in their case. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into the Taylor Swift quote, because that, that is what a lot of people seem to be talking about. I'm going to give you my quick take is I found it just awkward. I found I felt that it was a moment that just didn't land and was in, inappropriate. But what, what was your response to that? So let, let me start off by this. I am known for using metaphors. While I'm here, I will probably use many, many more. So I am not coming for this defense attorney for using metaphors. They are a great tool. But when they miss the mark, yeah. ah, do they miss the mark? First of all, you try to make it seem like this was something you were driving to court, just listening to Taylor Swift, and you heard this lyric and you had an epiphany. First of all, if you heard the lyric, you would have gotten it right. She got the lyric wrong. She said, Band-Aids don't stop bullet holes. And as someone who was married to a diehard Swifty, I was like, first of all, this song is bad blood and it's, it's, it's Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes. So if you get someone like me, whose mind just goes, I don't even listen to Taylor Swift and I know you got it wrong. You could not have been listening to the song and have this epiphany, you're selling this bullshit. And if you're selling me bullshit from your first opening line, then why am I gonna believe you? That's strike number one for me. Two, you are talking about the murder of four children in a school. Yes, I understand as, as attorneys, we talk about some of those horrific things. When you're in the trenches like that, sometimes just a little bit of levity helps you. But now you're talking to a jury and the jury doesn't have this kind of in the trenches mindset that you and I have. You can't talk to them like that. And I was just like, yeah. I just put my head down. I was like, when is this going to end? Like, when yeah. is it? Yeah. Yeah, read the room. Understand the magnitude of what you're talking about. Realize that the next 
The very next witness they're going to hear from, by the way, the very first witness calls called was a teacher who was there that day and was shot herself. Understand the moment. And that just it missed the mark. And I'm being nice about it. You're right. Um, it, and, and what I felt it did, too, is because she started with that. I imagine that the next and I think you kind of said this, the next few moments, the, the jurors are just kind of thinking only about that phrase and that awkwardness and missing most of what she has to say after that. And I just feel it was unfortunate. But again, you know, these are opening statements. There's a lot of trial to be had in this case. One last question on this case um, is that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the defense has tried and not always been successful, but they're, they're trying to argue that evidence of the actual shooting should be limited in this case because the circumstances of how the crime actually took place are not really material. This is their argument to what Jennifer Crumbly is being charged with. She was nowhere near the school at the time of the shooting. No one is saying that she somehow facilitated the shooting to actually take place. Therefore, they're arguing that to show that is prejudicial and only inflames the jury when we're not talking about a person who was actually involved that day at the school. I tend to agree with that. What are your thoughts? So I, I actually disagree. If I'm looking down, and I would recommend people to look at it as well, I'm looking at the, the what is it, the state of Michigan's Court of Appeals decision because this the state of Michigan Supreme Court denied cert. So we've got a pretty good outline of some of the legal backgrounds of, of what's being argued when we look at the, the Court of Appeals. And just these, these are my notes because I had it on ABC uh, and writing some of it down. One, the, the one issue I take with that is the standard is, is it more prejudicial than probative? Right. Right. You can't just say it's prejudicial because Correct. everything is prejudicial to your clients. <laughs> we wouldn't have cases if, they, if we took out right. all the prejudicial stuff. Um, so I have to balance it between the probative and the prejudicial. And the reason why I bring up the State Court of Appeals is because they they, they list out so beautifully the four things that need to be proven uh, for this. First is that the, the defendant's son presented a danger to the community. And I think that first point is illustrated in the carnage that happened. When you look at a, at a school shooting, you look at a mass shooting, did he just go into one room, shoot four bullets, four people died, and then he surrendered? Or did he meander through the school in just carnage of shooting and shooting and shooting? And if we're talking about presenting a danger to the community, you have to know the difference between the two. And this is what really infuriated me about this case when the defense attorney said she didn't watch this video. Because if you are going to argue the, the, the lack or the seriousness of danger that your client created in their alleged negligence, you have to know the danger. And the danger is the video. Yeah, I don't want to interrupt you, but you're right. That was another shocking moment that we saw uh, at the beginning of trial is that they played this and the prosecution, and this was at sidebar without the jury present, was taking issue with kind of the emotional response that the defendant and the defense attorney were having to this. And she made the statement, I've never seen this before. And I about hit the floor. And she, her reason for that had something to do with this is doesn't have to do with our client. Therefore, we didn't. What? You're telling me you don't look at every piece of evidence, no matter what it is. That was. Well, I can, t I can tell by the look on your face. It was shocking to you as well. Talk to me a little bit about that. So, Joshua, you, you and I have been doing this enough in courtrooms that we see things we probably don't even talk to a our, our loved ones about. 
I'm talking child pornography cases where prosecutors can't even send me the discovery. I have to go to their office and watch it. And I leave and I tell my wife, hey, um, I'm going to go to a bar for a couple of hours. I might be home a little late. What I saw just needs a few glasses of whiskey and we're not going to talk about it. The amount of autopsies I've had to see to see when I'm just arguing my client's not the killer, it's someone else. I don't need to see the cause of death, but I need to look at it in order to say maybe the cause of death was the drug overdose and not my client punching him in the head. I might It might create an argument that I didn't know, even though I thought this was an ID case. You look at every piece of evidence, no matter how gruesome, because you took an oath and you have a duty to your client to represent them in every facet possible. Not just the facets that you think are interesting, not just the facets that you think are relevant, but everything. How dare a defense attorney think that is an intelligent and, 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 and strong argument to say in front of their client, in front of a court, as an officer of the court, that you didn't review evidence because you didn't think it was relevant. I nearly lost it. I almost threw my chair and wa- I was like, no. Like, what are you doing? And then I looked her up. This is a prominent defense attorney. She is no one is doing sex crimes. She's got the, the jib. She's got she's got the, 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 the fighting moxie to look at stuff like this. This is not a, a new defense attorney. And I just thought to myself, I was like, you know what? Let, let's let's just let's just let's just keep moving. Like, that was <laughs> yeah, uh, not a. Not a great start for the defense. Uh, kind of rocky, and it, and it, and a lot of what I'm going to call unforced errors too. Um, again, early on, we're obviously going to keep an eye on this case. Um, it's expected to go for the next couple of weeks, and I think that as it plays out, it will continue to get more fascinating. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move on uh, to Los Angeles, California, where after a grueling selection process, attorneys have designated a panel of jurors in the upcoming trial of a wealthy socialite accused of causing the death of two young boys. Rebecca Grossman, the wife of a prominent Southern California surgeon, faces two counts of second-degree murder and vehicular manslaughter, along with a charge for hit-and-run driving. The charges stem from a 2020 vehicle collision that took the lives of 11-year-old Mark Iskander and his eight-year-old brother Jacob, who were struck in a crosswalk by a speeding vehicle right in front of their mother and five-year-old brother. Both Mark and Jacob died. Prosecutors claim that at the time, Grossman was racing with former Major League Baseball pitcher and her alleged lover, Scott Erickson, when she struck the boys at over 70 miles per hour continuing for at least a quarter mile after the impact until her Mercedes SUV eventually shut down. Her defense, headed by high-profile attorney Tony Busby, asserts that multiple cars were driving through the crosswalk around the time of the incident and that no other vehicles were ever investigated by law enforcement. 
While there is evidence that Grossman had been drinking before the incident, she's not being charged with drunk driving after registering a blood alcohol level just below the legal limit, which means in order to convict Grossman of murder, prosecutors will need to prove that the woman acted with implied malice, knowing the potentiality for deadly consequences of her driving. Brian, this case is a, a tremendous tragedy. Uh, here, in, in I know it's been covered nationwide, but in, in California, here in Southern California, it made a lot of news because of how um, awful a story it was about these two young boys being killed in front of their mother. Um, but my question is, tragedies involving automobiles and pedestrians or other automobiles People die every single day on our highways. What is it about this case that elevated it from an accident to a crime? It is the the manner in which she was driving. While she is below the legal limit, the legal limit being 0 0.08, uh, many states still have impaired driving uh, for below that. Yes, you can have, well, depending on your on your body mass index, you can have a, a beer or two is still legally drive, but it doesn't mean that your ability to drive isn't diminished into, to some degree. It doesn't mean your decision-making can't be diminished to some degree. And I think the victims in this case, the fact that her driving led to a death and the irregularities of her alleged driving or the alleged irregularities of her driving, driving, I, I believe they said she was doing 81 miles per hour, in a zone that she should not have and the fact that it led to the death and even i would tell you viewers go look at the car look at the damage to that car um i'm, I'm canadian where we're, we're familiar with hitting moose and, and deers and whatnot <laughs> and we see the damage and the carnage that comes from that these were young boys and and and, and children who got hit but the damage to the car i i think even gives the lay person an understanding of the force and the speed in which she hit these children. I say, I, I admit that she did because her defense is saying she did. And I think that's what really raised it to a criminal level. Yeah. And we're talking about an area that's not a highway, right? It, it, it's got a crosswalk on it. So this is an area where it's determined that there will be some pedestrian traffic. So you would imagine that the speed limit is lower there, that people should be kind of on alert, that there could be pedestrians crossing. It just, um, it, I think it goes more and more towards the recklessness of her driving. If they're able to prove that she was in fact racing with her, you know, uh, associate <laughs> that day, um, it just it begins to the, the fact that she didn't stop immediately that the car didn't stop for for a, quite a distance afterwards it all just starts to add up towards you know pushing it from that level of of accident these things happen all the time this should be handled in a civil way into that realm of criminal if you're her defense attorney, I mean, he's already kind of highlighted this idea that other people were going through, other cars were going through that crosswalk. What do you think their strategy is at this point? So I'll put it, I'll put it this way. Tony Busby, we've heard his name a lot in, in high profile cases. We've seen his work, good, bad, ugly, and, and in between. This defense, I think, is probably the only defense that you can make looking at the damage of the vehicle. And you, and you can't deny that she hit someone. Uh, and the fact that she stayed at the scene shortly after. But if I was to give this a, a sports analogy, this is like trying to make a, a 55, maybe 60 yard field goal. 
Have I seen it before? Yeah, but it's tough. And let, yeah. me, let me break it down and explain why. If you're saying that she might not have been the first person to hit someone or the last person to hit someone, what you're in essence arguing is that you are not the cause of death. You may have injured the, the victims in this case, but someone else committed the, the quote unquote death blow. The reason why I, I find that difficult, and, and I'm not saying impossible, I'm just saying difficult, is look at the damage. The yeah. damage is very high up on the hood, which suggests to me that whoever you hit was standing. It's not like someone hit them and then you ran over them. And if that person was standing, what's to say that the first hit killed them? Second part, maybe you went on the argument to say, hey, you injured the person, but the person who came behind you killed them. You, you've got to get me an expert who's going to be able to distinguish between the marks on your vehicle, the tires on your vehicle, and the marks and tires on the other vehicle and that person's body to say, ah, this little hit of the skull would hurt you, but this person killed you. And I don't know if you can find an expert to thread that needle. And that's what brings me back to that 55, 60-yard field goal. It's difficult to make that argument. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, uh, putting the law and the arguments aside, I don't think you're going to find 12 people who are going to let someone walk after two children were killed in front of their mother and brother this is such a tragedy and when they start to hear about that and they start to hear the mother testify there's no way they're letting their, letting somebody like this walk for that i just, i just think you know we 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 know you and i know this though as much as you tell jurors that emotion should play no role in it um, there's already there's already uh, a thumb on the on the on the scales here as far as what the defense is going to have to get past if they want to, like you said, pull uh, off that that hand. pull off that miracle field goal. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a whole hand, Joshua. I don't think that's a thumb. <laughs> yeah. Two hands. yeah, God, what a sad case. Finally, we move to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where here we go again after. Uh, a, another stunning reversal in the shooting death of Helena Hutchins as prosecutors have again filed charges against Alec Baldwin, citing, quote, additional facts in the investigation. Hutchins was killed during the rehearsal on the set of the movie Rust after Baldwin pointed a gun at Hutchins, which discharged and fatally struck the cinematographer. Baldwin has maintained that he believed the gun was unloaded and that he never pulled the trigger. The refiled charges come on the heels of additional expert analysis of the firearm used in the shooting, along with new testimony, which prosecutors claim demonstrates Baldwin acted with a, quote, total disregard or indifference for the safety of others, according to the grand jury indictment. Meanwhile, the film's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who was tasked with ensuring the safety of the firearms on set, is set to go to trial next month. She is also being charged with involuntary manslaughter and an additional charge for tampering with evidence. Baldwin's case looks primed to head to trial, with his lawyers stating that they look forward to his day in court. The actor faces up to 18 months in prison if convicted on the involuntary manslaughter charge, a fourth-degree felony. Brian, what what is going on here? What is this prosecutorial ineptitude, or is this just the way things work in New Mexico? Now we've got additional facts after over a couple of years of investigation. What is your take on all of this? 
It could be an aptitude. I don't know. I don't practice in New Mexico. It could be the way they operate as well. To me, in following this case from its inception and even seeing the, the, the recent uh, indictment, the analogy that always comes to me, again, always using analogies, is they were really trying to uh, smash this square peg into the circular hole, and they did it till it fit. And, yeah. and the reason why I say that is because their only investigation, first it was, we're going to charge him. He could have he could have never discharged discharged the firearm without pulling the trigger. Then they do it. Then the FBI does an analysis on the gun, and then they they they, they stand by that statement. Then there's some operation issues with the gun. Uh, they end up dismissing the case. They themselves says, you know what? We don't have enough evidence here. Uh, we're going to dismiss the case. Then, from my understanding, the FBI, the way they tested the gun, it damaged the gun in a way that made it difficult for the defense to say, hey, I can't argue now. Like, thank God you dismissed it because we don't know. So, to me, the FBI must have reconstructed the firearm, tested it again, kind of put Humpty Dumpty back together again, and it must have fired. That to me is a defense attorney is like, oh, what makes you think that you put the gun back together in the exact way that it was um, made when my client fired the gun? If you can't say that 100%, then whatever test that you made to get an indictment in the grand jury after putting Humpty Dumpty back together again has no bearing on what my client used as a gun when he allegedly fired it. And if there is a back and forth within the prosecutor's office itself, that to me is built in reasonable doubt. And I would share in the confidence of Alec Baldwin's attorney to say, you know what, let's just pick 12 and let's figure this out. Because you yourselves couldn't have a lack of reasonable doubt. Why should a jury believe you now? I, yeah. I think he's a strong case. I think he has a very strong case. I, I, even putting aside I know a lot of attention has been put on the idea of did he pull the trigger, didn't he, would that gun go off without pulling the trigger, where was his finger, all of that. I would go as far as to say, even if he pulled the trigger, I think this is a difficult case for the prosecution because you have to show some sort of criminal intent and they can go, well, it's negligent to hold a weapon and have your finger on the weapon uh, when there's other people around. Yeah, that's negligent on the street at a firing range, it, it, on a farm, and you're handed a gun. This man has been handed a gun on a movie set. Go watch an action film and see how many guns are pointed at other actors in that film. All throughout movies, the whole idea is you're pointing guns at other people and pulling the trigger, and he's being handed a gun on a movie set. He's a seasoned actor. He's been handed guns, what, hundreds of times on movie sets before? Always told the gun is safe rehearsing a scene i don't think there's a there's any way to make the argument that he thought for even half a second that this gun could possibly be loaded and it could lead to something like this now the counter argument to all of that is yes but he still should have checked himself or yes but he still should have heard from a different person that the gun was safe or yes but he still never should have put his finger on it to me if you're getting down to those kind of yes but arguments in front of a jury you're already losing it's a it's a weird theory that they're bringing in front of the jury to begin with i think the stronger cases against the armorer and they should stick with that and then you add to that this whole circus of the you know if you remember too from the very get-go, they had to um, dismiss one of the allegations because they had charged a crime that wasn't 
in effect at the time of the of the the alleged incident. So it's like they've they've just made so many missteps. You would think they would have taken the opportunity to walk away from this thing, but boy, are they charging right back into the to the to the clown show? Yeah, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate to a few of those points. I'm not necessarily going to believe them, just I think they're interesting. Alec Baldwin did multiple interviews, and many defense attorneys yeah. say, "Don't do that." because he might have to testify in this case. And if there's any discrepancy in his, I think he, I know he did one with George Stephanopoulos. I think he did maybe one or two after that as well. I think he did at least two, maybe three. And then he testifies in court, any discrepancies gonna hurt him. Yeah. I know in the, in the George Stephanopoulos um, interview, he said, I never point the gun at someone, I know better. So if there's any pointing of the gun, that may hurt him. I think I don't do movies. If anyone wants to hire me for a movie, hey, like I, I <laughs> you're available. Available, <laughs> but I think oftentimes they point to the camera or off camera, not directly at someone, and so that might hurt him because he, he says, "I know not to point at someone." I like your point about the other people did checks, and and the counter argument of maybe he should have done a check himself. I think if you relate that to the average person of just like, what is your job, right? Like, like Joshua, you came on beforehand and you have an amazing staff, no one William, and what do they do? They check the audio, they check the video. I didn't come on and check the audio and video. I came on and I prepared my notes. I, I read the motions. I, I, I wrote up stuff. I did my thing. I'm not yeah. double checking your audio guy's stuff. I'm not double checking the, yeah. the person who's doing the live feed or the recording. I, I'm not going to do that. That's not my job. I trust in the professionalism of your of your team, who I know is phenomenal. And you can do that with nurses, teachers, um, construction workers, anyone to say you do your job well and you check to some degree the people around you, but you're not double checking everyone you work with. Otherwise, we wouldn't get nothing done in the society. So that counter argument, I think, falls a little flat. Yeah. Yeah. Unless there's a witness that comes forward, and this is somebody we haven't heard from yet, that says, um, we were having troubles with Baldwin on set because he wouldn't follow all of our safety precautions. And we asked him multiple times that, uh, could you please check the weapon yourself anytime you're handed a weapon? And he refused to and said, I'm too big of a star and I don't, I don't have time for that. Or... Uh, he was very ha haphazard and even showing up to, you know, if they're if they've if they're going to establish some sort of um, recklessness and or cavalier attitude that he had towards safety and then say on top of all of that, in this instance, he pointed a gun when he shouldn't have and everything else. OK, now you're starting to build build an argument. But like you said, if he's just being doing kind of routine movie work and he's being handed a gun and told it's told it's safe. I think to then argue in front of jurors that that's not good enough and he should have checked is going to, uh, they're going to have a hard time uh, getting jurors can, to wrap their heads around that. Well, that's an interesting point you bring up because I, I think, and, and don't quote me on this, I'll tell people to go double check this. I think Alec Baldwin wears multiple hats on the Russ set. And so I think if they go after him as an actor, fail. But I think if they go after him after a producer or an executive producer or someone who runs the, the, the kind of the whole show itself, Maybe you have that, but still you employ other people who are experts in their field to do that for you. And from what I understand, they might've been cutting corners. It might've been a lower budget movie. Maybe that feeds into it. But again, to your point, I don't know if it rises to the level of criminality if he's trying to run a tight ship and maybe doing it a little bit of a cheap way. You've got to show me something more. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, it sounds like we're going to get a trial to find out all of this. I mean, I fully admit that there's there's more to this case than the, we have heard of and that I understand. And so maybe there's something the prosecution has that I just don't. I don't know and, and, and can't allow that to play into my view of this case. But as I sit here right now and from everything I've heard, I think they've got their hands full. Um, but we will continue to watch it. But that is our show this week. Brian, as always, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so I am on I guess, X or, or Twitter. <laughs> right. uh, you can see me on ABC. I'm on ABC News Live, Nightline, Nightline Impact, Good Morning America, and Good Morning America 3. And as Joshua so graciously set me up for, you'll see me every other week on Good Morning America 3. It's uh, 1 p.m. Eastern. The next episode is February 1st for Better Call Brian. And of course, you can pick up my, my young adult uh, novel, Come Home Safe, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever you can uh, pick up a hardcover. And also, the audiobook is out as well. Fantastic. And I invite everyone to check out Brian uh, when he does these segments because they're really insightful. If you enjoyed his comments here today, which I'm sure you did, you will enjoy what he has to say on GMA3. I am your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>